Tuesday, February the 1st, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be moderating today's show, and I get to introduce the stars of our show. That would be the three of my colleagues we refer to as the Goodfellows. That includes the historian Neil Ferguson, the economist John Cochran, and the geostrategist slash Goodfellow, most likely to dress up as Cupid on Valentine's Day, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution's senior fellows all. And joining us today to talk about her new book, Amy Ziegart. Amy is the Hoover Institution's Morris Arnold and Nota Jean Cox Senior Fellow and Professor of Political Science by courtesy at Stanford University. She's also a Senior Fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Chair of Stanford's Artificial Intelligence and International Security Steering Committee, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. And if I can catch my breath for a minute, if you're not already impressed, she is also a, an author. She has a new book out. It's called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History of Future of American Intelligence. Amy, welcome to Goodfellows. Well, it's great to be among the good fellows. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So we spent a lot of time on the show, Amy, talking about China and Taiwan. We spent a lot of time recently talking about Ukraine and Russia. As we look at those two theaters, Amy, given that you've been writing about intelligence gathering, are you impressed by our intelligence in these two matters? Or as we try to figure out what Vladimir Putin is doing and Xi Jinping is doing, are we seeing any holes in our intelligence? Well, I think HR is in a better position to answer that question than I am, but I can say from, and, I'm, and I, I want to hear what he has to say, but from the outside looking in, I think our intelligence with respect to Russia looks like it's pretty multi-source and looks like it's, it's pretty, we have a lot of fidelity on it. And you can see a lot of syncing up with the UK in terms of the intelligence that, that they're gathering and that they're also releasing to the public. So I think that's a, you know, a positive development. But I don't know that Vladimir Putin knows what Vladimir Putin's going to do. So this is always a tough target trying to figure out intentions of adversaries. HR, I don't know if you have a different view on that. I think the intelligence community has done a very good job, as you mentioned, not only in, in collecting and analyzing intelligence, uh, but but also I think the, the the bridge into operations and the release of that intelligence. So you, might, you might you say a few more words about that and how it relates to your book on the use of intelligence. I think that that it was clear, it was coordinated release, I think, in terms of the, the Russian plans to unseat the government or the lightning attack. And I think, if anything, has rocked Putin back in, in recent weeks is probably the release of that intelligence. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting development and a new way of countering these gray zone activities. Right. So the, the Russians are trying to um, have a provocation. Uh, they're trying to, you know, have a sort of a phony uh, pretext in, for which to invade. Uh, and by releasing that information, it makes it much more apparent what they're going to do and also appears to have rattled them a bit. And so I think that's a really promising development. And, a, and it looks like a relatively new tactic that the government is using. Right. So, as you know, well, the tendency is to keep secret secret as much as you possibly can. Right. To, to hold back rather than to reveal. And so in this new age with, with these gray zone activities, we have to selectively and strategically release information to our advantage, not just hide it. You know, there's just one example uh, that, Amy, that I think of from when I was National Security Advisor. We had we had increasing evidence uh, that, and that, uh, that Assad was going to launch another mass murder attack with chemical weapons. This is late 2017. And um, and we released that information, and the president made a very public warning to Assad. I, I really think it prevented uh, another mass murder attack at that time. Now, again, they, they did something in in uh, in the spring of 2018 again, but um, I think it's it's just important to to know that intelligence has to be put to use, <laughs> and uh, and and I think that the the recent example is a good one. Amy, I took from your book that 
we've allowed in intelligence and the military to get a little bit too intertwined uh, in the years since 9-11. Uh, and I found that a, a compelling argument. How does it look in the light of this current crisis? Because precisely as the United States is not planning any military action in response to whatever Putin does, are we back to a kind of pure intelligence operation? And how does this relate to the theory of hybrid warfare, which is a term often banded about in the context of, of, Russian, of re Russia's recent wars? Yeah, Neil, you know, I'm so glad you asked that question. The, the, the good news and the bad news about the global war on terror is that intelligence and military operations were more tightly intertwined, right? So that was very effective uh, in the global war on terror. But what it means is that the CIA in particular has less capability, less resources, less bandwidth to do the one mission that it's supposed to do, which is preventing strategic surprise, right? So preventing a 9-11, preventing a Chinese uh, you know, invasion of Taiwan, understanding what's going to happen before it happens. And as I like to say, you know, in, in HR, you've lived this, right? The military officers are trained to be hunters. Intelligence officers are trained to be gatherers. Big difference. And in a world where you can't tell the difference between what the CIA is doing and what the military is doing, that's bad for the United States. And so I was struck in my interviews in this book by um, a few intelligence officials who said, you know, I wish we had been able to spend as much time dealing with great power competition every week as we did looking at terrorist threats every week. Imagine where we'd be if we had focused the CIA's attention on the emerging great power competition. We might not be in this position today. So I think we're now seeing a shift toward changing resources, looking more strategically at what's going on in Europe, what's going on in, in uh, the Asia Pacific, the Indo-Pacific with China. But that rebalancing hasn't been completed yet, right? So Director Burns at the CIA stood up a China Mission Center. We had to stand up a China Mission Center now, right? So there's more work to do to rebalance. And can I ask a follow-up question before John jumps in? He's absolutely burning to, but in a very rare departure from our normal order of battle, <laughs> he has not yet spoken. But just hold hold on, John. I what, think we one... should keep it that way, Neil. Let's see I'm, if we can I'm, do it. This is, this is what we call the intelligence community a pattern break, Neil. This is a pattern break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't think John had any intelligence to make him aware that he was going to be treated this way. But I want to just talk a little bit about the history in your book because the, the book is is not it's not a standard political science book on the contrary you you actually in the middle of the book say okay let's put all this into some kind of historical perspective and i'd love you to talk and i'm, I'm sure the listeners would too about uh, some examples of when the cia did what it was supposed to be doing did see a strategic surprise coming i keep thinking of 1973 uh not least because i'm writing the second volume of, of my Kissinger biography, and they were completely not uh, ready for the Arab attack on, on Israel, the Yom Kippur War. So give me an example of when they did the job that they're supposed to do well. Well, this is where I always hear from folks on the inside, you know, you only talk about our failures and you don't talk about our successes. And I say, well, you don't talk about your successes, so it's hard to know the scorecard. So if I, I wish I had the full picture to be able to tell you, Neil, the overall hit rate of the CIA over time, but I think about sort of two big successes. 
One, the strategic success, and we can arm wrestle over whether you agree with this or not, understanding the fundamental limitations and internal weaknesses of the Soviet Union. The CIA understood that. They might not have predicted the time, place, and manner at the end of the Cold War, but they did very much assess the weaknesses of the Soviet Union, the economic uh, fragility of the Soviet economy, um, the sort of destiny of history that the Soviet Union couldn't sustain itself. And I think we underestimate how important those insights were in the Cold War. And then the second success that I would point to is one that is more recent, which is the 10-year hunt for Osama bin Laden. And what's remarkable about that success isn't just that we got him, but that in order to be successful, analysts had to do an unnatural act, which is they had to throw out all of their assumptions, which were very reasonable assumptions and based on how bin Laden had operated in the past. So the agency thought their assumptions were, number one, he, he would hole up in a rural area somewhere between Afghanistan and Pakistan. He's familiar with that territory, he likes that territory. Turns out he wasn't, he was hiding in plain sight in, you know, in the middle of a city. They thought he would um, have a lot of security around him, he didn't. They thought he wouldn't have his family around him, he did. So bin Laden actually changed all of his tradecraft in terms of how he was hiding. And in order to find him, agency analysts and others across the community had to get very creative and very self-reflective about discarding reasonable assumptions to creatively follow the trail. I think it's an extraordinary success, that 10-year manhunt for bin Laden. Yeah, yeah but it was hunting more than gathering, wasn't it? I mean, of the, the two examples you gave there, only really the first is about about foresight. And and even then, it's not an A, is it? Because it's not as if the agency realized how close to collapse the Soviet Union was by 89 to 91. In fact, mm. almost nobody, a couple of journalists can claim they got this right, but they may just got lucky. But almost nobody got the timing of that Soviet collapse right. And that's important because I, I look back now from the vantage point of 2022, and I think, did, did we kind of stumble into NATO enlargement? Did we end up creating problems for ourselves because we hadn't really thought through what we do if the Soviet Union falls apart? Because basically the agency didn't attach a high probability to that happening when it happened. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you, but I think about, did we not foresee the difficulties of NATO enlargement? That's a policy question. That's not an intelligence question. And so- no, My point is we were surprised. Ultimately, let's face it, we were all pretty surprised by the speed with which we went from the Berlin Wall coming down to the Soviet Union itself dissolving. And I just wonder if, if on that issue, your key point, the CIA is about predicting the big surprises, even there it was- it was a pretty vague kind of, of prediction. I would agree with you, but I also think, you know, these are like the three-point shots of foreign policy. So forgive me for using a basketball analogy. I know you'd prefer rugby, but- um, <laughs> We'll come to sport later. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, if all you're judging is the success of a team by what their, their three-point shot percentage is, right? Those are the hardest shots to make. You said, well, you only made 30% of your three-point shots. That's a lot right? Because that's a hard shot to make. So when you're talking about preventing strategic surprise, incredibly important mission, very, very hard mission. One of the things that really struck me in researching this book is how often all of us get stuff wrong. So if you look at Brexit, which is a great example, right? There were 35 polls in the weeks before Brexit. They were almost evenly split, 17 one way, 15 another. All the polling showed within the margin of error, right? 
Yet, if you look at the betting markets, 88% was on remain, right? So investors got it wrong. Pundits got it wrong. Holsters got it wrong. Why did they get it wrong? The data was there. It was there in plain sight. Optimism bias, right? People thought that they didn't want Brexit to happen. And so they discounted the data. So we're all sort of victim to these cognitive biases and intelligence officials are too. And I think that goes a long way to explaining a lot of the failures that we've seen. All right, John, <laughs> off you go. I just want to invite a, before I have a thousand questions for you, <laughs> I just wanted to invite a step back. Cause one thing I did get out of uh, reading the background stuff here is that uh, most people uh, confuse the various roles of the different agencies. There's the CIA, the NSA, the FBI, military intelligence, the New York police, they all do different things. Uh, and there's a sense of what are we talking about from the intentions of adversaries to uh, the scuttlebutt of politics around the Kremlin to the capabilities, um, uh, you know, what, what can the Russians actually do to the, you know, if you want to assess the current situation, how, how many soldiers are where, how many tanks are where, how many gallons of fuels do they have? <clears throat> are they, you know, what do their supply lines look like if they invade? That's, that's halfway between military and, and the, the technology. Are we, uh, you know, li listening in on uh, spyware, what the NSA does? Uh, do we have um, spies out there in the field listening and so forth? So I think some delineation of, of what we're focusing on would help our listeners. And then I have a thousand questions, which maybe I'll get one or two in. <laughs> hey, just as a transition to Amy, Amy, this is what's great about your book. Your book makes yes. intelligence accessible to general readers. So I don't think I just don't want any of our listeners to think this is a book just for intelligence people. This is a book for for readers across the country. So well, thanks, HR. So I, I will share with you guys. I wrote this book because I started teaching this class at UCLA years ago, and I polled my students just kind of on a lark to ask them. What did they know about intelligence and where did they get their information from? And the answer was they knew almost nothing. And what they got, they got from the movies and TV shows. And so I want this book to be a book that my students want to read. I mean, they're going to be required to read it, but I hope they're going to want to read it. And it's for a general audience. And so, um, but to answer your question about what is this behemoth, what are these agencies we're talking about? There are 18 of them in the federal government alone. I think most people don't realize we have so many agencies. Uh, everyone's heard of the CIA, but you mentioned several, several others that are incredibly important. So the National Security Agency uh, does foreign signals intelligence. So, and I emphasize the word foreign because they're not listening to your phone calls with grandma, right? Many people think they are, they're not. Um, so that's emails and telephone intercepts and encryption and breaking and making codes. That's what they do. Um, there's a, the National Reconnaissance Office, which builds and maintains spy satellites circling the, the Earth. Uh, and of course, every uh, military service has its own intelligence agency. Uh, the State Department has an intelligence organization, the Energy Department, uh, the Department of Homeland Security. So a lot of different cooks in the kitchen. And one of the key challenges, and to get back to Neil's earlier point about how history is so important, and I, and I agree, Neil, um, these organizations have always had a hard time coordinating. It was true from the Revolutionary War. George Washington had a hard time keeping track of his own intelligence operatives. And he wrote a letter at one point saying, I forgot what fake name I'm supposed to use to communicate with you because it was a DIY operation. So it was true back then in the Revolutionary War. It was true before Pearl Harbor, where the you know, signals of Japan's surprise attack were there, but the different elements of our government couldn't put them together in time. That's what gave rise to the CIA. Right. And it's true today, coordinating these different 
18 different agencies is a real challenge. One thing that really strikes me reading the book is that there was a terrible nadir for the CIA in the 70s. And uh, you talk about it, but I, I felt as if it, it was a more important turning point than perhaps you allowed. We forget now the sheer horror from the vantage point of the intelligence community of having it all dragged out into public, including the notorious uh, family jewels, which eventually came to light many years later. Talk a bit about that crisis in the 1970s when all the covert operations uh, were suddenly in the New York Times or the Washington Post. There must have been a terrible crisis of morale within the CIA, CIA at that time. I'd like love to know more about how they came out of it. I kind of know how HR's world came out of Vietnam and how they sort of rebuilt the military almost from the ground up in the wake of that. Mm -hmm. But I know much less about how the CIA got its mojo back after the humiliations of the mid-70s. Yeah, I you know, if I could go back and and rewrite part of the book, I think I would pay more attention to that period. I think you're absolutely right, Neil. It's such a crucial period. And it was a dark period for not just the CIA, but for the FBI and the NSA. So started with news reports revealing CIA assassination attempts abroad and illegal spying on Americans here at home, dissident groups, anti-war groups, civil rights groups, massive spying on Americans, illegal spying on Americans and uh, by more than one agency. And then of course, all of this comes out, not just in the press, but in public congressional hearings. And these are back in the days, different than congressional hearings today. It's polarized today. It was polarized in the 70s, but not nearly to the same extent. So you get this bipartisan Senate committee led by Frank Church, and they make their hearings public. And so the nation is watching as they're holding hearing after hearing after hearing and revealing their reports, volumes of reports detailing all of these excesses illegalities and abuses. So imagine these secret agencies, all of their dirty laundry is now in the public. They're humiliated, they're demoralized, they're caught really fundamentally violating the public trust that was put in them as secret agencies operating in a democracy. And they're scandalized by it, right? So what happens? How did they get their mojo back? I love that expression. I think partly Congress in this case is the good guy in this story. We, we sort of bemoan Congress a lot, but Congress sets up these permanent oversight committees. And so then oversight becomes more routinized in a good way. There, there is a, you know, a role for these congressional committees to be ambassadors between the secret world of intelligence and the public world of accountability. And I think that begins to get the intelligence community on a better path. And then time, right? Time heals a lot of wounds. And so there's a new generation of people uh, that come into the intelligence community. Now you might remember James Angleton was also head of counterintelligence uh, at the CIA at the time. And there were dark days with Angleton too, very paranoid, really destroying parts of the agency and people's lives by his obsessive quest for the you know, Soviet moles inside the CIA and, uh, and, and really destructive. And so he leaves the scene too. Uh, he's fired ultimately. Uh, and then there's a rebuilding period uh, after the Cold War ends. Um, so it took a while, I think, but I think Congress in this case played 
maybe a largely unheralded role in getting the CIA's mojo back and on a better oversight path. So not not all is hunky-dory. Snowden's uh, release uh, showed that the NSA was in fact tracking cell phone metadata on US citizens. And and, uh, you you can think very quickly about how that information can be used for all sorts of, they were not listening to the actual calls, but you know, if you're if you if your cell phone was seen making a call from the parking lot out in front of a cancer center, we suddenly know a lot about a politician that politician might not like revealed as just an example of how that threatens right. several liberties. And the larger question: <clears throat> Are we holding too much secret? Uh, there seems to be enormous amounts of stuff that is marked top secret that is completely pointless to be top secret. A lot of it that is institution protecting. And a lot that the secrecy stops um, this process of figuring out what the information means. Uh, wouldn't uh, both, but you know, communication between agencies would be a lot easier <laughs> if the stuff were simply on Twitter, because then you know, and we see it in all of our professions how facts come in and get dissected in a community, but that only works if the community is 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 public. Um, so is is aren't we still keeping a whole lot more secret than should be secret? We definitely are. And, and John, you're channeling your inner director of national intelligence. So DNI Haynes. Yeah, I'm a libertarian, but go ahead. <laughs> so she just <laughs> talked about uh, recently how too much secrecy is impeding the effectiveness of the intelligence community. And there are so many compartments and HR, I'd love to know what you think about this. You know, so much is compartmentalized. There's this wonderful quote that former DNI Jim Clapper said uh, when the Washington Post was doing its investigation called Top Secret America. And he said, there are so many special access programs above top secret of compartmented information. The only person with visibility into them all is God. <laughs> to your point, John, about it's awfully hard to get insight if information is marooned in different places. So absolutely too much is secret, too much is overclassified and it's hurting the effectiveness of, of our agencies. I don't know, HR, you you live this world. Yeah, there's some real practical ways you can get at this. It is a big problem. Uh, and, and especially if you're looking at integrating intelligence with other elements of national power, so, such as economic sanctions or law enforcement investigations that could lead to arrests or prosecutions abroad. You need to have readily transferable information. So just this very simple bureaucratic way to do this is to insist that the intelligence community write for release, that you have to write to release and protect obviously sources and methods and sets of information, but but put on these reports what's called a tear line. So below that tear line is releasable. It takes a little bit more work for analysts, but it's really well well overdue leading a a counter-corruption and organized crime task force uh, that brought in a whole bunch of different agencies. It was so frustrating because we had great visibility oftentimes on criminalized patronage networks that were strengthening our enemies, uh, but we couldn't act on them as easily as we could have if we had had this information available. And then, Amy, what I'm thinking of and what your book reveals as well is how much more is available now open source, right? You look at satellite companies like Planet Labs and and now, of course, uh, with analytical tools, they're able to access databases and apply elements of artificial intelligence and big data analytics to gain better visibility. And uh, I'm thinking of a, a small company called Wikistrat, which looks at at, uh, at complex problems and then and then crowdsources uh, to experts, you know, to, to get feedback. And do you think that the intelligence community is making the adjustment now uh, toward 
readily accessing more open source stuff that's already out there, right? And and how much of what we need to know to secure ourselves is does already exist, you know, in the, in the public domain. So I think open source is the name of the game now. I mean, secrets still matter, but not nearly like they used to. And HR, you've hit on this, you know, policymakers read Twitter. They get all sorts of information from all different places and they're getting it faster than they are from the intelligence community. And so, you know, to harness what's openly available is a real sea change for the intelligence community, right? They, they trade in secrets, not so much in open source information. Um, and so they're doing some of it, but not nearly fast enough, not nearly fully enough. Um, and as one former official told me, the thinking inside the intelligence community is if something costs a trillion dollars to get, it must be worth a trillion dollars, right? That's not true anymore. A lot of the most valuable information is free and it's available online. And so figuring out, and I would say open source intelligence, we sort of throw around that term a lot, isn't just stuff. It's not just information, it's an ecosystem, right? There are all sorts of organizations that are crowdsourcing open source intelligence from nuclear threats to crime. And the intelligence community has to learn how to work and collaborate with this ecosystem, not just bring more stuff into the secret community. I have two questions that follow on from this. One has to do with the aftermath of Snowden, which John brought up. I'm, I'm curious to know just what, if anything, of something like PRISM survived, because it's pretty clear that the big tech companies know a lot more, not just about American citizens, about, but about just about everybody. Uh, than our, any government agency possibly could. And I'd love to know what the relationship today is between the intelligence agencies and the big tech companies, because I don't believe they got a complete divorce uh, after Snowden. That's question one. And, and the second question is, if we are in Cold War II, which I think we are, uh, isn't there a huge asymmetry in that we are open source? The West is kind of open source, but China is not. And it strikes me that if you compare Cold, one, Cold War One and Cold War Two, in Cold War One the problem was very finite. We kind of knew how many Soviet agents uh, there were, roughly, and they knew how many uh, CIA and MI6 agents there were, and it's the sort of world of James Bond or or of John le Carre. But today's Cold War is this big data Cold War, except that the Chinese have way, way more access to our data than we have to theirs. Question two. Well, thanks for the softball questions there, Neil. <laughs> Let me start with the, uh, the relationship between Silicon Valley and the intelligence community. It was bad. It was really bad right after Snowden, but it's gotten better. And I, so right after Snowden hightailed it to Hong Kong, not long after I had a congressional cyber boot camp, we brought in members of uh, staff from Congress, both parties, both houses, uh, and we did a field trip to a tech company. Um, a big tech company, you'd recognize the company and, and uh, we're there and a senior executive in the tech company sort of points his finger and he says, you know, we, tr we believe that you are an enemy just like the People's Liberation Army of China. We're protecting our systems from you, the US government. And, you know, the staffers were just shocked and ran outside and were calling the bosses about, oh my gosh, it's worse than we ever realized. That's the trust deficit that happened with Snowden. And so I think there was a sense of betrayal among tech companies in the Valley. 
that the government said they were coming in the front door. And in fact, they also came in the back door. But that's a lot better now. And I think there are three reasons why it's better, the relationship. China, China, and China. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's nothing like an external threat that is threatening both our U.S. economic position and our political and military security to bring Silicon Valley and Washington closer together. So I think that relationship is much better than it was. But as you know, as you've written and you know, the incentives are not well aligned, right? Co these companies have global shareholders, global markets, global employees, and they don't think only about U.S. national security. So they're mutual interests, but they're different interests too. So I think it's getting better. So there's some good news there. I don't want those interests well aligned. The last thing I want is the politicians in charge of the U.S. government uh, aligning themselves with Facebook to collect all the information on me they can possibly have. That, that sounds that's dystopian. But I would also like to think that when tech companies think about, am I going to do business to help an authoritarian regime create a better censored search engine? They say no. So when I, you know, I think there's a lot of room between dystopia and patriotism. <laughs> or, or, or to protect against the theft of intellectual property, John, or, you know, or to prevent, you know, human trafficking and the worst forms of child abuse with warrant based access. You know, that's what I mean, that's what distinguishes us, I think, is we have due process of law and, and uh, we have to adhere to that. It's when it gets abused, Amy, like it like uh, the FBI abused it. Uh, during during the uh, the investigation of the 2016 election meddling, that's when people lose confidence. I think. So Amy, you know, hey, Amy, what I like to ask you about is is uh, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about trying to anticipate black swans, but a lot of times it's just like a pink flamingo. It's like right there in front of in front of us, <laughs> and nobody wants to talk about it and just ignores it, right? And you write quite a bit about this uh, about optimism bias and the effect it can have. I mean, most recently for for us, we all saw it. We create, created the enemy in Afghanistan we would prefer to have, right? It was a Taliban that was not intertwined with jihadist terrorists. It was a Taliban that just kind of came out of the mountains instead of a product of, of multinational support and the organization of the ISI and the, the Connie Network and Al-Qaeda. It was a Taliban that was more benign, you know, and, and, would, and would be inclusive and share power. And so it's, it was an extraordinary degree of, of self-delusion based, I think, on, on optimism bias. Could you say more about that and maybe some of the examples that give some of the examples that you cover in the book? Yeah, so Neil will appreciate this. I'm going to channel my inner historian, right? So classic example of optimism bias, China's surprise entry into the Korean War, right? In your, in your parlance, HR, it was a pink flamingo, right? So there were lots of reports of massive numbers of Chinese troops, uh, you know, mobilizing near the border. And, you know, what did MacArthur and his intelligence chief uh, conclude? They're not going to invade. Um, you know, as long as we stop five miles short of the border, we won't be provocative, right? So there was a discounting of information that came in. So lots of biases at work there, right? Confirmation bias. So we'll believe the stuff that uh, that we already believe in and we'll discount the stuff that contradicts us, like you read the horoscope, right? So that's kind of, that was a, a classic example of optimism bias. You know, MacArthur's troops were planning a victory parade in Tokyo. And instead, 40,000 of them came home in coffins. So the price of optimism bias then was really bad. Um, but we think about you know, major intelligence failures and the common analytic errors behind them. So if you think about um, India's 1998 nuclear test, caught us by surprise. US intelligence learned about it in a press release, right? This was a big failure. 
why did we not see that one coming? And part of the answer there is mirror imaging. We thought Indian politicians would behave like American politicians, which is to say they make campaign promises they would never intend to keep, like saying they would test a nuclear device. Well, surely that's just campaign talk, right? And so it turns out that actually they said what they were gonna do and they did it. So we see a lot of mirror imaging that was true in the Cuban Missile Crisis. It was true in the, uh, in the uh, Iraq war. Um, and so these things come back time and again, these cognitive biases, I call them the seven deadly sins or the seven deadly biases in the book. Well, Amy, this ties in the question of how much intelligence we do vis-a-vis -vis our friends and allies. For example, are we actively gathering intelligence on the UK and France and Germany and trying to figure out what they want to do vis-a-vis -vis Putin? And what about Israel? When Israel takes out an Iranian nuclear scientist, do we know in advance or is that another case of us being surprised? I think it depends. You know, the one sort of inner circle of collaboration in the intelligence world is the five eyes. And I know, you know, the good fellows know this well. Um, so it's the US, the UK, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Very close intelligence collaboration coordination. Beyond that, as I say in the book, it's a jungle out there. Allies are spying on us, we're spying on them because we need to know what they're thinking, right? Our, back to incentives, our interests are not perfectly aligned with any other country in the world. You know, Germany's view vis-a-vis -vis Russia is affected by, you know, the gas supply and the pipeline. Um, so our European allies are our allies, but we also need to understand where it is they're coming from. Oh, and by the way, they spy on us too. So when they, when they protest too much that, you know, we're listening to Angela Merkel's telephone calls um, it's true that they're trying to gather intelligence on us too. Israel's a very active intelligence, uh, has a very active intelligence presence in the United States. They're trying to find out what we're up to too. So let's not kid ourselves. Amy, we focused on tech and <clears throat> satellites and listening in the internet and so forth. There is a charge out there though that US intelligence has fallen short on the old fashioned stuff that there just aren't enough people who speak languages and aren't enough people uh, in-country reporting things to us. Is this true or, or not? What's your view on that? I don't know what the current recruiting numbers look like in terms of key languages, but there are two enduring barriers, I think, in the intelligence community. One is you can't hire and fire people like you can in a company, right? So suddenly we have Russian speakers and we need Pashto speakers, right? You can't just turn one into the other overnight. You can't hire and fire to deploy the right talent against your top problems in a nimble way like a private company can. So that's enduring, right? And the second enduring problem is the technical one. So I would argue that what we really need is people who speak binary, right? We need technologists. We need a lot of them. We need good ones inside the intelligence community. And I think we're really behind the curve on uh, that war for talent because there's, there's such a shortage of engineers in general in the United States. And they have so many options and it's really hard to get them in the door. And so, I'm, you know, this is something I know folks in the intelligence community are really worried about. Well, maybe Can we talk can... a bit about counterespionage and the Chinese uh, problem, which was my second question that, that we left by the wayside, but it seems hugely important. And it's, it's very live for those of us in academia where it seems as if a considerable amount of, of Chinese activities be going on for quite a long time. Um, how far do you think we have got on top of this problem? Again, unlike in Cold War I, there are lots and lots of citizens of uh, the People's Republic of China in our universities and uh, other, and in the tech companies. 
Do you think that we've got a handle on, on who's actually a spy and, and who's not? Because there's a danger that if we don't get that right, we're going to end up in yet another American episode of, uh, of turning uh, suspiciously against uh, a significant uh, immigrant community, only a relatively small number of whom can be thought of as fifth columnists. I think we haven't gotten it right. And, and Neil, you point out, you know, we can wrongly accuse people and sort of descend into xenophobia. And we can also let the Chinese intelligence services win, right? So there are two big problems with where we are today. And you're right about, you know, the, the internet, I'm on a task force and, and, you know, we always hear the refrain, free and open internet. And I finally, you know, suggested in the comments, the internet is not free and open. We need to get over it. It's only free and open for our adversaries, right? They can get all of our data all day long and, and walk around in our systems and our universities and our country. But we do not have that freedom of maneuver in China, in Russia, and in other countries, North Korea. So there is a real information asymmetry. Um, and I think it really hurts us on the intelligence side of things. So, you know, what are denied territories today? Awfully hard to um, meet with someone on the ground in China with all of the surveillance capabilities, the techno surveillance capabilities that the CCP has. So there's, they're increasingly denied territories for American intelligence officers to meet with their um, uh, assets on the ground in a way that there really aren't in the United States, right? It's a much more of a, of a, a free uh, and open uh, hunting ground for Chinese spies coming to the United States. So this is something that the FBI and other agencies in the government really need to get a better handle on because we don't want to accuse uh, people of spying for China. We don't want to create a chilling effect in our universities. We, I think we want to hasten the brain drain. I want the best students from China to come and study in the, in the United States, and I want them to become citizens, and I want them to work for American companies and work for the U.S. government. Um, or, or they can go back to China and say, oh boy, I had a little taste of liberal democracy. Uh, right. that, that, uh, people going back, uh, HR may speak to military exchanges have been very valuable in, oh, there's, there's officers in the Pakistani Air Force who for a while went to the US and kind of knew who we were. <clears throat> so uh, yes, immigrants yeah, I, I would out, just... but also go back, plant, plant the seeds of what we know there. Compared to the number of actual spies and the actual secrets they get, cutting ourselves off culturally, intellectually, technologically from China seems like a huge mistake. But we can't be naive about it either, right? So we don't wanna give, we, we need to be more careful about when people put on their visa applications, their cyber warriors for the People's Liberation Army, maybe we should take a harder look at what we're going, where they're applying to and whether they have free reign uh, inside computer science labs in the United maybe, States, maybe for those example. People, wait, 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 maybe those are the people you want, bring them in and turn them. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, key, the key is you need a, a good counterintelligence effort because they are determined, this is the People's Liberation Army and the Ministry of State Security, to penetrate us deeply into and to, to do harm to us from a national security perspective, but also from an economic perspective. And this, Amy, I think is where the interests of the Department of Justice, for example, should be aligned with those of our tech companies. And you mentioned a little bit about how that's that relationship's getting better. Uh, but also, I think should be aligned with universities because it is the Ministry of State Security and their cutouts, like the Chinese Students and Scholars Association, that intimidate Chinese uh, nationals in in our universities. And so, I think no university president or provost can be wrong, can go wrong by saying 
we are going to protect our students, our, our foreign students, our Chinese students from uh, the intimidation and coercion of the Chinese Communist Party. I think that's kind of the stance to take. Any thoughts on that, on how you see universities regarding the intelligence community and law enforcement who are engaged in counterintelligence these days? Well, you know, I'd like to see a consortium of universities so that there is a consistent approach. I think you're exactly right, HR. But even if you look at within Stanford, if you've got a problem or a concern or question, where do you go, right? Where is Where are the lessons learned? Where are the best practices? Where is the conversation about how each of us in our community is responsible for helping to protect foreign nationals who are being intimidated by their government, right? There's no 411 or 911 that provides coordination across the university, much less across universities. So I think there's more we can do in the academy to work with the US government to protect these students who come to our universities from foreign uh, intimidation interference. My guess is that a really small proportion of intelligence that the Chinese have gathered from US sources has been gathered by uh, individuals in the territory of the United States, and that by far the largest percentage has in fact been accessed remotely. Let's talk a bit about the new face of, uh, of espionage, which is essentially cyber warfare in all its different forms. Because if I had to predict what the next big disaster would be that the CIA and others would fail to predict, it would be a massive cyber attack that really takes out a significant part of critical infrastructure and communications in the US. So, I, I mean, that's the thing that probably most people who don't pay close attention to this underestimate the extent to which we're in a completely different world from the world of, of James Bond, of Ian Fleming and John McCarry. We're in a world in which most of the intelligence breaches are just happening uh, electronically, digitally from, from, from far, far away. So it's interesting, Neil, I actually have a different cyber worry than you do. I worry not so much about taking down our critical infrastructure, but eliminating our trust in our critical infrastructure. So imagine instead of taking down the banking system, nobody believes that their bank accounts are accurate, right? Mm -hmm. Or no one can trust that their stock trades are being made correctly at the end of the day. I, I must that, say, I, I feel that almost every day that my portfolio <laughs> declines. So I'm already there. <laughs> I'll be just, right. I just can't. ignore it. <laughs> just keep it in and ignore it. But I think what's fundamentally different about cyber, there are many things that are different about cyber than the physical domain, but that psychological element is different. It's about trust. It's about trust in your machines. It's about trust in your institutions. It's about trust in your society. And so one of the things I think that, that the intelligence community absolutely didn't see coming was in the 2016 Russian election interference effort, and, and in particular, the use of Facebook, the use of social media to erode trust and sow divisions in our society. And so it's not just about power, and it's not just about military might, it's not just about stealing our secrets and shutting down things. It's about hacking our minds and changing how we think about ourselves and the trust in our institutions. And that, to me, that's what I'm worried about in cyberspace. Yeah, I worry less about that because they've already done it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a, that's a that's another of HR's pink flamingos. Uh, but but I mean the full uh, shutdown of of communications or some other part of infrastructure, which we got a foretaste off with the colonial pipeline attack. That they haven't really done, not on scale. And my sense is, I was talking to somebody in the insurance business about this. Uh, somebody very 
senior in that world, and he said, you have no idea. The, the extent of the cyber attacks, uh, malicious attacks, is much greater than the public realizes because companies don't want to admit when they have been hacked or when their systems have been disrupted. And there was an interesting piece in Foreign Affairs just the other day uh, making the point that, in truth, we don't have a great counter-cyber strategy in place, and companies are kind of on their own if they if they come under attack. So we should talk a bit about that, because it just it doesn't seem to me to have happened to the United States. It's happened to Ukraine. It's happened to a bunch of other countries. We've done it to countries. But when it happens to us, I have a bad feeling that we're going to be really about as well prepared for the cyber attack as we were for a pandemic. I think you're right. I mean, you know, you think about, and the Biden administration has tried to bolster cyber capabilities, but, you know, CISA, which is the organization in, in the Department of Homeland Security that's really at the front lines of dealing with these threats, has one-tenth the number of people that the National Park Service employs, just to give you some perspective. So our parks are better protected than our uh, cyber systems and critical infrastructure in terms of what the government is doing. We are woefully underorganized for cyber defense. And so I think there's a lot of talk about cyber deterrence. And I think for the most part, that's a fool's errand. That what we need to think about is old fashioned defense, resilience, intelligence. How can we get things up and running again, often with non-technical solutions so that when the, when the systems go down, we can still function. That's where we need to be focusing our energy. And I'm really concerned, it sounds like you are too, that we're kind of missing the ball, right? This is a, if, if, you know, if we could have made organizational changes on September 10th that we made after September 11th, we would have been in a much better position to have prevented those attacks. I think we're in the same place with respect to cyber. This is a September 10th moment. We are nowhere near close to organized to protect ourselves. I want to draw you out on this, especially the defense versus deterrence question. And first of all, from a financial point of view, I worry exactly what you worry about. It just takes a rumor on Twitter saying a bunch of accounts at Chase have been drained and something's wrong with it. Everybody runs to the ATM machines and the financial system goes dark. <laughs> you know, you can spark a run, uh, that, that kind of thing can spark a run quickly. God forbid it was an actual uh, breach. But <clears throat> is it not the case? So the kind of attacks we've seen are mostly criminal. It's mostly people who want ransomware. It's mostly people who want money. We know about um, state-sponsored capabilities uh, like our Stuxnet virus, the thing we used to bring down some uh, uh, um, Iranian uh, power plants and so forth. Uh, if I were, uh, I get a, a, a vision and I want to know if this is true. This is sort of like the Cold War nuclear stuff. We are, are we not holding in reserve enormous offensive capabilities? And are they not holding in reserve enormous defensive capabilities? I mean, if I were in charge of this, I would have spent the last 10 years planting little viruses here and there through Russian computers that are just there waiting for me to call them. And if I were the Russians, the state part of the Russians, not, not the part that wants to ransom your, uh, you know, ran, ransom you and get some money, uh, I would be quietly planting viruses here, there in American computers. So, uh, and then when the invasion of Ukraine happens, you flip the switch. Um, so what does the cyber war, the all out cyber war, us, Russia or China, when, when these, when the nuclear weapons fly and, um, and, and you know, cause it's secret, they don't really know what we have on them. We don't really know what they have on us. Uh, and should we all run down to the bank today and get $10,000 in cash out uh, and, and some canned beans and, and some ammo? 
Well, I love how you go to the to the economics of it, John. It's, we're, we're down to cash and beans. So <laughs> it's always a good Wrong idea. Wrong portfolios. <laughs> so, you know, I think you're right. Well, when the, um, sorry, when the credit cards don't work for a month. Yes. <laughs> right. So there's so many complicated things about cyber. We've talked about a few of them. But one is, you know, we don't have the equivalent of the above ground nuclear test to demonstrate your capabilities in cyber without actually using them. Because once you use them, they can send them back on you or they can render your cyber weapon ineffective. So there is a natural reason why countries want to keep their cyber weapons close to the vest. But that makes it very destabilizing because you don't know what the other side can do to you. Um, And then we don't know how it will escalate right in time. So that's one key problem. A second key problem is cyber weapons don't accumulate. So the more F-16s you have, the more firepower you can bring. But the more copies you have of the same vulnerability or malware doesn't get you anything, right? You need well, variety, you not quantity. You can bring down the power lines and the banks and the, and the stoplights and the hospitals. and. But I might need only one piece of malware to do that. My point is, if I have 10 copies of that malware, the more quantities of the same malware get you nothing, right? right? I need variety of cyber capabilities, not quantity of cyber capabilities. That's different, right? So that's a different engineering problem. So, I mean, I don't know. I haven't gotten access to the classified information about what exactly we can do and what others can do to us. But I do believe, and we can. this is publicly available, the Pentagon cyber strategy, we are moving to, as they put it, defend forward, taking the fight to adversary networks to stop them and cause friction so that they have to spend more time defending themselves rather than attacking us. I think that is a smart change in strategy that started a few years ago. Uh, and I think we need to do more like that. Would it not be wise to whisper, now maybe they have, to whisper to Mr. Putin, um, here is what will fall apart the day you walk into Ukraine. And here, by the way, is a snapshot of your bank balance in various countries that's gonna disappear and that of all your cronies. I, I gather we have a lot on him that we're not talking about in public. Uh, so to some extent, keeping this stuff secret uh, ruins the deterrence aspect of it. Absolutely, it's like, it's like a Dr. Strangelove, right? It's not a doomsday machine if no one knows about it. <laughs> Uh, Amy, I'd like you to uh, answer a bit of a paradox for me, and that is that we, your book, uh, in your book, you lament that Americans don't know more about intelligence, uh, and yet we're talking about a topic which is inherently delicate and secretive. And you also go on to say it in a promise that the American public has been weaned on intelligence vis-a-vis pop culture. Neil referenced Austin Powers earlier and Mojo and James Bond and so forth. Uh, But it sounds like modern day espionage is not necessarily cinematic. There's not a lot of sex and drugs and femme fatales and martinis shaken, not stirred. So how can you make intellectual, how can you make intelligence gathering interesting to the American people who at all times want to be entertained and titillated? Well, I mean, I think it actually is inherently interesting. I mean, I I like James Bond as much as the next person, but I think real life is pretty, pretty fascinating. And one of the things I really was excited about putting in this book is the voices of real people in the intelligence community, what it's like to be them. So when did they tell their kids what they did for a living and how did their kids react? Right. We don't, that's a great story, but we don't see that in the, you know, in the, in the sort of nonfiction world. I asked them what their ethical challenges were in their jobs. I asked what their best and worst moments were on the job. 
So I actually think there's a lot that is really interesting about the intelligence world. We don't need to have uh, the sort of fake plot lines that we have um, from the movies. Um, and I hope that comes through in this book. That, that is my real hope is that people find it interesting and engaging and not so wonky that they want to tune into Jack Bauer and Carrie Matheson instead. Okay. Well, we are running out of time here, so I can't uh, help but close the show without asking a question. I know it's going to absolutely bother Neil Ferguson in this regard. And there's lots of intelligence here, right? A lot of intelligence here, I'm sure, has been at the computer downloading all sorts of secret files on this question. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, we're not doing Goodfellas next week, so the next time we reconvene will be after the Super Bowl. Here's where Neil will start to frown. Uh, Question, Amy. In the book, you talk about intelligence gathering being more difficult than, say, reading the market or gambling on sports. So uh, since it is easy to read the Super Bowl, why don't you give us a winner? Then I want John to talk about what he is doing on Super Bowl Sunday. Is he going to be watching the game or gliding? Then I want a good minute on Neil and what is awful about football, and then we'll close on a positive note with HR defending the great American spectacle. So, Amy, the Super Bowl on Sunday, what's going to happen? Okay, so I'm going to plead I'm a bad intelligence analyst for football because I have not spent the time looking at the data. One of the great things about the NFL that is different than intelligence is there's so much comparable data about, right, about who's good, who's injured, what their record is. I haven't looked enough at the data. So I'm going to rely on my optimism bias and my hometown bias, which I'm going to predict a Bengals win. Why? For no other reason than I grew up a Bengals fan because I grew up in Kentucky and that was the closest NFL football team I could watch play. And God knows they haven't won in like forever. Uh, And I, you know, I got to root for the Bengals, but based on no data whatsoever. John, Super Bowl Sunday, are you watching the game or are you outdoors doing something vigorous? Uh, usually outdoors vigorous and, and what depends on the weather forecast for Sunday. But I'm rooting, of course, all the way, Chicago Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Neil, here we go. Football, American football. What is wrong with this? Well, how uh, to begin? In the end, it's the mutant form of rugby. Uh, a terrible mistake was made in allowing the forward pass. I think that was in the late 19th century at Harvard. And then even worse, armor was introduced, uh, creating, uh, I think, the very worst kind of incentives so that players butt, butt heads. And finally, you have the nightmare of being able to attack pe- tackle people who don't have the ball. The result is the game constantly breaks down. Uh, and just when it's getting interesting, uh, you, you start over. This is the most tedious uh, sport with an oval ball that exists. On Saturday, instead of uh, ruining your Sunday with the Super Bowl, there is the Calcutta Cup, Scotland against England, the great game of rugby union. The ball flows. You can only tackle the man with the ball. It's an altogether superior game. And the best thing of all is that HR agrees with me about this. Right, HR? No, so HR, here's what, I, here's what I think Neil is missing, HR. It's not just football. This is America in a nutshell. This is about checking off various forms of simple behavior over the course of about five hours. Sloth, gluttony, gambling, eating and drinking to excess. John, it's about marketplace dynamics, the ridiculous ad fees on TV and ticket prices. But by golly, it's America. HR no, no, baseball is America. Baseball is America. That, that, I, I get baseball. I'm with you, John, on that. But but if 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 football is America, then we're doomed. That's all. No, I they're both America because there's rules and norms, and both sides respect them. All right. HR close. HR close to show by defending this game, defend this institution. It's also a great social uh, occasion, right? You can get people come to your house for parties. You get to see people watch, 
you know, watch the watch the game a little bit, but I, most often, you know, I'm not watching unless the Eagles are in it. I'm not really watching it that that uh, that that uh, closely. But I, you know, I'm a convert to rugby union myself. You know, I, I played football since since I was in third grade. I started playing football with uh, with pads and full contact, and then uh, I got to West Point and discovered that I could not see over the offensive line uh, as as a as a recruited quarterback. So. Uh, you know, I walked over to the rugby pitch, and that, that was my conversion. I mean, two 40-minute halves, a five-minute halftime, continuous action, uh, a, a real balance between strength and conditioning and speed. And, you know, I, I think uh, I think if, if more Americans understood rugby, I think the NFL's ratings would go way, way down. This is what is known in the intelligence community as a defection, and I'm proud, <laughs> I'm proud to have brought it about, or at least helped. And, hey, I should just point out, I, I played wings. I was, I was deceptively slow, Neil. As a wing, it tackled and missed you because they were in front of you. Okay, the general's a politician. He didn't make a pick. <laughs> hey, I'll, I'll, I'm going for um, Cincinnati because they're the underdog. I've been rooting for the underdog the whole way. I was I was rooting for the Bills, and just it's just heartbreaking for my friends in Buffalo. It's just so darn sad. But uh, but I'll root for Cincinnati. It's hard, you know. I'm a, I'm also you know a convert to the West Coast, but the, the West Coast teams the West Coast teams have not grown on me yet. You know, I just can't. As a, as a Philadelphian, it's just really hard to root for a California team. I can't watch the Super Bowl if it doesn't have Tom Brady in it. Uh, I, I, that, I spent enough time in, in Boston when he was the key to the Patriots' success to feel that having a Super Bowl without Tom Brady is kind of Hamlet without the Prince. Let me, let me end this on this note. Uh, it's a California Super Bowl. So one thing about California you're going to see on display is people not wearing their masks indoors. The NFL plans to hand out 70,000 KN95 masks to the people. If you watched the game last Sunday, nobody was wearing a mask, including our intrepid governor. So let's see if Los Angeles cleans up his mask in uh, two weeks. So that's it for this installment of Goodfellows. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we are going on a short break. We'll be back in the middle of February. And you want to catch our next show. We're going to be doing it live. Uh, all of us in person for a change, not on Zoom. And our guest will be Barry Weiss from Substack fame. You definitely don't want to miss that. Terrific guest, Barry Weiss. The title of Amy Seagard's book, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence, available online. And I like to think where good books are sold. You can also find Amy on Twitter, as you can our three good fellows. Her Twitter handle is at Amy Seagart, Seagart spelled Z-E-G-A-R-T, at Amy Seagart. On behalf of my Hoover colleagues, Neil Ferguson, H.R. McMaster, and John Cochran, our guest today, Amy Seagart. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We'll see you soon. Thanks for watching. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring HR McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds, also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.